Salams, guys. It's Zaud here. Just a quick note before we start this episode. Uh, every interview we do here on the Transit Lounge is done face-to-face, in person, but no interview is done in a studio. The nature of this show is that we're out and about meeting our guests in transit, in hotels, and I mention this now because in this episode, more than any other episode this season, you're going to have to remember that point. Today's interview was recorded 1,100 meters above sea level, overlooking Lake Geneva. We were literally sitting on a public bench. That buzzing sound you'll hear midway through was actually a bee hovering around the mic and that bird screeching was a real bird and those people in the background the ones that wouldn't get the point even when they saw us recording and didn't understand my hand gestures either they were real too but other than that today's interview is an absolute beauty one of my favorites actually this season enjoy It, it, there are times when I'm driving up or I'm walking up to Parliament, I look at Big Ben and I think, wow, I worked there, right? <laughs> From a girl who's, you know, literally spent nights in crack houses and had experienced homelessness, been on benefits, you know, single parent to three children, being where I've been, you know, ne- nearly not woken up to be in, in a position where I'm representing. And, I, and I'm a very Muslim MP, so I wear my Muslimness on my sleeve and Good. openly... From Toledo Society, this is the Transit Lounge, where we track the journeys of people who've had a considerable impact on the Muslim world. I'm Mohammed Zaud, and today on the show, Naz Shah, the member for Bradford West and Shadow Secretary of State for Women and Equalities in the UK. You know, when reading bios of people who have gone off to do incredible things, you often hear about the people who have gone from zero to hero. You know, humble beginnings to the multi-millionaire. But seldom do you come across people who have gone from absolute sub-zero to something big. When I first heard of Naz, I thought, whoopity-doo, another Muslim politician. But when I was continually bombarded by friends of the Transit Lounge to interview her, Never did I imagine that I'd hear the story you're just about to hear. My lesson from this interview, don't judge. Full stop. Enjoy the interview. Um, well, where my story, story really started was when my dad left my mum when I was six years old and my mother was expecting my sister, Fozia, and uh, my brother was only a uh, young uh, year and a half, two years, uh, maybe even three years old, actually. She didn't know the language, she didn't know how to get around, um, and she really wanted, in the 1980s, early 80s, it was very much Thatcher days where we needed, um, you know, the housing uh, idea was you should have your own, be a homeowner, that was a big thing. Absolutely, yeah. So my mum then uh, sold her wedding jewellery and wanted to buy a house and put a deposit down. And the neighbour's nephew, um, a chap called Azan, he um, offered to buy it because she couldn't get it in her own name to, to secure a mortgage. And she said, you know, we'd, we'd get this mortgage. And when my daughter turns 18, the grand plan was that, you know, she'd then she'd transfer it, it and she'd take it over. <laughs> and by that time, I should have, you know, ideally paid it off so I'll have a house for my kids. And um, the first time he took her to the house, he raped her. And she suffered lots of abuse oh for God. years and years. It turned out he was a drug trafficker, convicted to prison, you know, um, had favours on the inside, pimped her to um, inmates at point, you know, upon their release. So she had a lot of abuse for years and years. And um, she, you know, tried as much to keep the family together. She sent me to Pakistan at 12 when I was 12 years old. And I stayed there till I was 15. And I returned after my marriage. Uh, and it was a forced marriage, but it wasn't from my mum. It was from extended families. So I had a forced so you got marriage. married at 15? Yeah, so I had a forced marriage at 15. Mm. And then when I was 18, my mum 
Azam, um, my mum tells us is that Azam suggested that my younger sister was growing older now, so he might she might have got me away from him, but actually my younger sister was growing older, and that that's where his eye was, if you like. And my mum um, tried, attempted to commit suicide plenty of times, lots of mental health issues. In the end, she just um, killed him. She gave him arsenic and poisoned him. Your your mum killed. My mum killed him. Killed Azam. Oh and so, um, um, she spent twelve years. So she, she she served. So she was convicted of murder, and then she in uh, back in nineteen ninety two. And when she was um, and at that point, she then uh, we started doing a campaign about why she didn't tell the truth about the sexual abuse and exploitation. And that was a whole concept of Izzat and you know honor. Of course. And um, so yeah, we I had um my mum. Like, what did you What did you take from all of that? I mean, that that's definitely not a. A standard British upbringing. No, it definitely wasn't. I've had a, you know, I, I'm a very, I'm the underdog that made it into Parliament. That's for sure. So I've, you know, I lived in poverty. Had TB when I was a kid. Moved from, you know, 14 times. I think it was when we were young. You know, from squalor to squalor, uh, rat-infested places. It was horrible. It was really horrible. But then, how I did suppose, you get through it? Well, we you get through it because you, you, my mum was a good mum. She was really, really amazing to us. And if you don't know anything different, you don't know you're in poverty. The truth is, that is what you're, you you understand mm. and that's your conditioning, isn't it? It's only when you step out of it that you realise, well, actually, that was horrendous. You know, that was more horrendous than you actually realise at the time because at the time you just get on with it. And um, so, yeah, I had a, a not normal upbringing and then my dad, my brother and sister and my sister and my brother I became responsible for at the age of 18 with a mother in prison. So my life was turned upside down. And in the meantime, I had a husband who'd come from Pakistan who, you know, used his fist to talk. Um, very violent, very aggressive. And um, so I, I ended that marriage. And that was really difficult because he was my first cousin. Mm. And so there was a lot of, I've, I've got a lot of patriarchal issues that I've had to deal with in, in my community, within my community. And then to fight my mum's campaign to talk about sexual abuse was mm. really difficult because even today we can't. So imagine doing it in 1995, Absolutely. 23 years ago. It was really hard. So where did you where did you think you'll end up? Like, did you ever imagine during those times that you'll end up being a member of parliament? Oh, God, no, not those times. In those days, when my mum was in prison early days, it was you lived for the day. You didn't even think about tomorrow. It was just trying to pass, you know, trying to get through each day as it, it came. And what helped you get through through all of this? I think um, some of it was because I, I, some of it, reflecting back on it, I understand I had no choice. I really didn't because my mum was locked up. So overnight, I became the parent to her. And the first time I left her in prison, it was like, if you've got children, you'll understand this. You know, when you le leave a child in nursery for the first time, right, They'll look at you with those really puppy dog eyes with saying, please don't leave me here. And it breaks every parent's heart. It's incredible. Um, and then uh, what was your educational journey throughout the your upbringing? So when I left school at 12 here, I went to Pakistan. And then um, I went to school in Pakistan. So I learned Urdu speaking. I'd already learned quite a bit from a tutor in, in Britain in, my, uh, in the local street. So um, yeah, I carried on with Urdu. Then I came back at 15 after I'd been married and I never went back into education. And I started a job packing, a packing factory at 15. Then at 16, I got a proper job in a laundrette, uh, washing the linen for a hospital, the hospital linen. And then after that, I, I got up, I, I went up a snotch and I went and started packing crisps at Seabrooks. 
So that was really good. That was really big. Good yeah. This is good food. You this know? is good food, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I learned to pack crisps. And after that, um, when my mum went to prison, so when I left my husband, I wanted to go back to college. I really had, a, I really, really wanted to get an education. And then, so I left uh, my husband and I said to my mum, this isn't going to work. That was in January. And by April, so I thought I'd start. Uh, you know, the, the next semester, which would be in September, and go back to college, do some GCSEs, basic stuff, and get back on the education ladder. And then in April, um, my mum killed Azam, so that went out the window. Um, so I did go and do, as part of my job. So whilst all of this was going on, I, I, I was a carer, started off as a carer with people with disabilities, because my mum had done that. And then I worked my way up to be an advocate for women with disabilities. I was a really good advocate for people who needed services. Um, and I think some of that was... I didn't realise it at the time, was driven by my anger of uh, the services that failed me and my family. Incredible. You know, like you, you did so well that you actually became the chair of a mental health charity, right? Yeah, so I, so I, I, I did that separately, but I used to be a Samaritan. I, just, I, I was a Samaritan and that's when I realised how angry I was and I hadn't dealt with my own emotions. So I became a Samaritan because I'd, I'd tried attempted suicide a couple of times. And the first time was the Eid where, uh, you know, it was Eid day. My mum was in prison. My brother and sister was in Pakistan and I had no blood relative around me. I was homeless. You know, I was sleeping on uh, somebody's dog mattress. You know, the mattress what the dog sleeps on. Oh my God. And uh, I remember just thinking, you know, I don't want to get up. And um, it was a whole, I think it was, I don't know how much tablets I took, but I took the lot and I woke up in hospital. You know, so I've had my, you know, the, the stomach pumped and all of that. But that was a probably, and that wasn't a cry for help. That was genuinely, I just don't, I can't do this anymore. So, yeah, and that kind of like spurred me to do be a Samaritan. And then you kind of like learn to appreciate that actually it's not that bad because there's people who've got it a lot worse than you. And it gives you, it gives you the humility to deal with your own crap and your own mental illness. Mm. And uh, it kind of like think, well, you need to show some gratitude because there's people in much more worse situations than you. But is that, is that what? Built the strength. Yeah, because you know, at the end of the day, you've got to, there's What we lack, what I feel we lack, is um, gratitude. You know, to be thankful for where we are, and even if it's bad. But your mum was in jail. You know, you couldn't get your education. Uh, you you were you were packing. You know, you were doing all sorts of jobs just to get through. How? how what do you mean by gratitude in that context? Even gratitude, even then, that you've got life and you still got choices. You can still get up, even when you're absolutely in despair. You can in this country, you know, in in, in England, you can still you still find people who will give you some strength. You will still hear stories. So for me, getting gratitude was being a Samaritan, listen to other people who've got it much worse than I have. You know what I mean? When I say, yes, it was pretty crap for me, but, you know, there are people who've lost people. My mum was still alive. She was in prison, but she was still alive. You know, my brother and sister were still alive. They were still, we might have been in poverty, but we still had life. We still had, you know, there were times when, yes, it was difficult. You know, my sister and I, we had one bed and my brother used to sleep on the floor. Me and my sister used to have the bed in one bedroom because it was the only room we could heat up, you know, and we could, because we didn't know how to manage benefits because I used to get benefits on a Monday and then by Wednesday we were skinned because Incredible. I didn't know how to spend, I didn't know how to And that's a monthly money. benefit, I'm assuming? No, weekly one. Weekly, okay. So we kind of like, you know, when you don't have that kind of guidance and support um was yes. there like a community uh did the community support did the religious establishment support in any way did no god no because it was very my mother was very ostracized because despite the fact that my father had left her and abandoned her for a 16 year old neighbor yeah. the fact was that my mum in in the patriarchal society it's always the woman's fault and that's what really really spurred me on to you know do what i do now even is that whole imbalance of the whole 
inequality when it comes to gender, gender-based inequality. And, you know, I'm, I'm writing my book at the minute, and it might not be ready for years, but, you know, my first uh, paragraph I talk about my actual fight for inequality started in my mother's womb, because despite the fact that it was my father's bio- biology that determined my gender, mm. the fact that I was a girl, my father didn't pick me up for more than nine months after I was born. Oh, my God. You know, so, so my fight started within my mother's womb with my conception. You know, as if we stop this interview here, and, and that was it, I would never imagine that the person I just spoke to beat George Galloway in an election. <laughs> <laughs> How the heck did you get into politics? <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm the accidental politician, I suppose. So, so I used to say I'm not a politician, right? And I'm just an activist because I, I campaigned heavily for women's rights in my mum's campaign and, and all the rest of it. You know, being recognised for work around raising awareness about women and uh, BME women in prisons and all the rest. And then I went into, so I had a career about, with the side of that. And in my career, I did, uh, alhamdulillah, I was really blessed um, to be in the NHS National Health Service at senior level. And um, and then I we had the banking crisis and I got, got made redundant. And then I went into, um, redundant in my main job, which was the NHS, but I I was actually whilst I was on secondment, but from my secondment, I resigned out, out of pro- point of principle. So I whistle blew. So I'm a whistleblower by background as well, oh, which is really interesting. So feel free to, to so, say anything yeah, so, you want. So, so my whistleblowing, I used to work at uh, Yorkshire and Humber. And they offered me a package to say, look, if you go away and sign a, a, um, a compromise agreement. And I said, no, because that principle, what you did was wrong. So every, the unison of my, uh, my, um, union at the time and every barrister every lawyer I went to said look right you haven't got a case because it's uh, and I said no I know what they did was wrong so I went and litigated in person so by day by morning I would set up you know um, my husband at the time um, my brother set up a business tried to do, run the business at a small cafe with a play centre in it and a ladies gym and then we um and by night, I was swatting up on case law, and I was pregnant with my third child. <laughs> so, yeah. Absolutely incredible. So, so how I ended up there was I, I litigated, I won the case. It was groundbreaking in terms of litigation against a barrister and taking him on and winning. Uh, you know, so it was, it was covered in my local period as a Goliath, David and Goliath battle. And then politics came along. It was really interesting. So a lady invited me to come to the... George Galloway had won the by-election, and they'd... Um, the Labour Party were reeling and they were carrying out a post-mortem. And the next general election was coming up in 2015. And in 2014, 1st of June, I'll never forget it, I was on my way out to see some friends on a Sunday. And then um, my one of these ladies, Sabia Khan, she said, uh, Naz, there's, there's an MP coming to Bradford to talk about what Bradford needs. And it's a guy called Khaled, Khaled Mahmood from Perry Bar. I'd never heard of the guy. <laughs> all right. So um, I'm really not And into I'm assuming it. you didn't really follow politics. No, you know, not at all. You were too busy, not you know, all, with, yeah. you were pregnant, I, you were you know, helping your... No, by this time, my son was three years old, so I'd kind of like, you know, my business, uh, my marriage had broken down. You know, then my whistleblowing and the breakup, everything really, really impacted on me. Okay. So, uh, so I, for, for two, three years, I was off the radar, if you like. So, so Khaled Mahmood came to Bradford and he was saying, oh, what's wrong with Bradford? And I just said, it's racism. And he looked at me as if to say, how dare you use the race card? I said, well, of course it is, because one of the things that Bradford has historically suffered with is, uh, is corrupt Pakistani patriarchal politics, brotherly politics, clan <laughs> politics. And I said, I didn't expect that when you meant uh, right. racism. Exactly. And I said, look, right. I said, you've got people in power, in positions of power, who do not challenge issues within the community that are patriarchal, which actually hold communities back because you're happy for the block, block voting. And if you're not dealing with issues because of the cultural differences, then that is racism. And he just looked at me and I gave him lots of 
examples because I was on a rant because I was running late and he'd, they'd made us wait. They, he'd done the typical thing by putting a few women upstairs in a restaurant out of sight, out of mind and let us wait there for over an hour. And I was like typical male politician. <laughs> Just, I was really angry by the time he got to me. When, you, when I'm angry, I can talk. Hi guys, just a quick note on Toledo Society. The Transit Lounge is one podcast in a network of podcasts under the umbrella of Toledo Society. Visit us on ToledoSociety.com to find out more. Back to the interview where this story continues to heat up. So what happens is Khaled Mahmoud asks her why she's not into politics and her response... And I said, don't be daft. It's a man's world and it's the dirtiest place to be. <laughs> and he looked at me and he says, well, if you ain't going to get in it, who's going to clean it up? And that was it. You know, somebody, because I, I don't like to be challenged. Right? If I'm challenged, I'll respond to it. <laughs> and he kind of like threw down the gauntlet. And then I went away and I said, look, I've got a bit of a checkered history, you know. And then he said, look, he said, so by the next day, I'd kind of like send in my CV because I'd had lots of, you know, before in the NHS, I'd had lots of leadership development. I was really, really blessed. Uh, you know, I had some really good people around me and, uh, um, they really invested in my future and in terms of my skill set. So I didn't have a formal education, but I did have a lot of leadership development. And that really, really stood me, it stood me in good stead, really, to do what I went on to do. And then um, the rest is history, as they say. And George Galloway, it was like, well, and somebody said, well, who's going to uh, who's going to beat George Galloway? And the other four women said, not us, we wouldn't, we wouldn't, he's just not. And I said, I'd, I'd do it morning, noon and night because he'd made the rape comment by then. Yeah. You know, and I really, really... But did you really think you could beat yeah, George Galloway? God, yeah. I'd never... Not in a million years, I think, no. Because I just had faith. I had my faith to see. So, so my faith is, is is really, really clear. That, And I know it sounds really, really corny and cheesy, but the truth is, you know, to, to my life motto is your need will define your outcome. And if your intention, your need. Yeah, your intention. Your intention. If your intention is to do right by your constituency and by, by the people that you want to serve and you want to make a difference to. Because Bradford, you know, socioeconomic deprivation is high. Education second from the, you know, league table, second from the bottom. You know, there's a lot of narrative that needs to be shifted and that needs leadership. So I'm, I have two passions. One is community development because I feel that communities have their own solutions. And one is leadership because if you have a right leadership, you you know, leaders create more leaders. Leadership is about creating leaders. It's not about creating followers. So you empower a community and that community then takes ownership of their issues. And that's real leadership. And that's support, supporting the community and uh, give them, they've, they've got it in them. The community owns their own solutions. And George Galloway wasn't serving the community. You know, he, he came in on a on a you know, on a wave of uh, saying he was going to take out body politics, but then he didn't do anything. And that kind of like, and then when he made the rape comments, you know, I gave, I voted for George Galloway when he came in. 2012, that's Yeah, right, in 2012, yeah. I voted for him because I genuinely thought if he can break the back of the brotherly politics, that will give women a voice and that will absolutely, because a community can only move forward when you have um, women as part of that narrative and women as part of that dialogue. And he, he made that even worse. So then it was like, you know what? And I have more of a right to take you on because I voted for you and you let me down. So you, <laughs> you know, you. Okay, now look, 2015 general election, you beat George Galloway, the George Galloway, <laughs> by over 11,000 votes. Yeah. Like it's, uh, that's, that's a majority. That's a, that's a sweeping victory. What did you do? What did I do? Well, well I think uh, the first, the, the night of a general election, I, I did my first ever zikr with my sister and my brother. And we sat there and we, because my brother said, oh, we need to have a meeting. And it's the most important meeting of all your election campaign. And I said, what? And he said, you need to come over to my house. So I went over and I said to my team, I said, look, right, it's the night before the election. I've got to go to my brother's house. <laughs> so we sat there and we sat there with candles and it was pretty, the lights were dim and all three of us just cried. We just cried in Zikr because here we were, all three of us experienced poverty together. You know, my sister, my brother, I'd raised them. I'd, you know, it was just, 
being sat there on the eve of a general election and that, that, that where we'd come from and to be potentially and I, and I was absolutely convinced that you know um, Allah was on my side on this one and I would be winning this election and I had no doubt about it absolutely no doubt about it and did you my look people in the eye who doubted you over the years who looked down no, at you and your family no, no because that isn't the reason you do it it's just that's a wrong premise to start from because because at the end of the day those that doubt you you know if you if you, there's a thing about humility isn't there in leadership and if you look at you know if you if you look at it from a leadership perspective leadership isn't about arrogance leadership isn't about saying hey you know you look you, you thought I couldn't do this and I've done it it's not about that it's, about it's not about people. proving people wrong it's about proving yourself right and there's a big difference between the both Fair enough. you know so alhamdulillah alhamdulillah so forward uh, a couple of years 2016 the labor party following a, a huge controversy that went went all around the britain uh, suspended you yes that's so a big deal it was massive so i it was really interesting because you know on the morning that uh, guido folks ran the story you, you know they rang me in the morning at 9 30 something Oh, sorry, they sent me an email, but I didn't pick it up till the afternoon. And I didn't realize the severity of it. I was like, well, I'm not anti-Semitic. I was really clear. So I asked myself the question. And to me, anti-Semitism was a hatred of Jewish people. And I looked, I really, really questioned myself. Do I have a hatred of Jewish people? Hell no. I'm not anti-Semitic. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So what, what exactly did you do? You, you just, you just, uh, you liked and shared a North, Norman Finkelstein yes, uh, I post did. that was actually just a joke, right? right. So, so it depends. If you fused, so what I didn't understand was the Jewish psyche. So I didn't understand the connotation of transportation because the Jews were transported during the Holocaust. So the connotations of the transportation, which were where, where people were hurt and offended. And then the issue between, you know, when I when I shared the um, meme and that, how the comparison between Hitler and what was happening in Israel, because this was in the height of the Gaza war mm. in 2014 that I shared all of this. And then there was one which was a poll um, and somebody shared it and I said, the Jews are rallying. And what I didn't understand was the psyche of power. So I understand racism. God, you know, I've experienced it all my Absolutely, life. I've fought yeah. it all my life. You know, so racism on colour I got. But I just didn't get the concept of power and how that would put a community at risk. So so I had a concern about Islamophobia. Mm. But by God, you know, when I, when I understood the Jewish psyche... I was even more worried about Islamophobia. Mm. And I mean, when it happened, you know, I, I'm a woman of faith. I remember thinking, um, you know, Alhamdulillah, this is something, uh, you know, nothing happens without a reason. There has to be learning in this for me. Mm. You know, so I didn't take it as a negative. And you've got to understand, yes, I did headline for two days. Yes, the Prime Minister asked for my resignation. Yes, I was suspended from my post of uh, Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Shadow Chancellor, John MacDonald. But actually, you know, it was... Uh, it was a, an amazing experience to be able to go and talk to a Jewish community who I consider my friends, who get that I wasn't anti-Semitic. I, mm. you know, I, what I did was wrong and to accept that, but continue to be an absolute passionate advocate for Palestine and what's happening there and the human rights violations and a critic of Israel. You know, I can hold that and I can absolutely hold that very comfortably. Um. Um, spirituality and your faith, has that changed over the years? Oh, God, yeah. So when my mum went to prison, I used to think, because I was born in a very um, patriarchal Pakistani family where you read the Quran, but you don't understand what you're reading, where you're taught a very different kind of Islam. So it's a very culturally specific yeah. Islam. And then as I grew, grew up, and, and I used to think, I had this idea that it was because my mum was a Muslim that this happened to her. It was Islamic what happened mm. to her. I, I always knew, I always had a connection with Allah. I always, I had a no, absolutely no, that, that's never been questioned. Mm. My connection to him and my maker, my answer, being answerable to him was never questioned. But I did think that people interpreted Islam. And it was because Muslims were, you know, so I had a hatred towards Muslim men. 
and I had a hatred because I thought it was a, it, their interpretation of Islam mm. and what happened to my mum and that the community had failed her, which they did. And then I had an amazing experience. So one of my managers, you know, he came to my house warming and the only thing he didn't like was the two-pack music. He only commented on the two-pack music saying, <laughs> it's derogative to women. And I looked at him and I thought, okay, get a guy with a beard brings me an ice for my housewarming present. Right. So I, I, he, he, he really epitomized for me. I wanted to know more what he was on because what made him so serene and so calm um, and be able to say that and, and be really, really amazing. And alhamdulillah. So yeah, so now... And now you're you know, praying and you're... Yeah, alhamdulillah. Yeah. I have my five-a-day. I call it my five-a-day, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my um, so I've uh, you know established my salah. I've uh, I want to go to Umrah. I really really am looking forward to that very soon. With my son's uh, a bit older and he could be my mehram, so he's eleven now. Naz, incredible story. Um, couple of quick questions and we'll wrap up. Yeah. What are two do's and two don'ts? Two do's and two don'ts. Do have faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, do um, yeah. It, you know, whenever I ask the whenever I'm doing anything, I, I, the question is simple: Does it line my Does it line my grave? Because it'll only line my grave if it's right by him. And um, that's simple. Don't don't be afraid. There's nothing to fear. There is absolutely nothing to fear. You know, you can't fear. I don't I, I don't do what I do. I do it out of um, the love for my maker and for the right you know for the right reasons and and humanity because compassion can change the world. So don't be afraid. Um. All right. Couple of quick ones. You're the Imam on the 27th night in Mecca and you have the chance to make one dua, one prayer. What is that prayer? Wow, that's a... I think it would have to be world, world poverty and just peace. If you didn't have to work, what would you be doing? If I didn't have to work, oh God, I'd love to do more charity work. Yeah, um, philanthropy. You know, I, I need to be a philanthropist. Somebody <laughs> needs to give me lots of money that I can spend on, on projects around the world. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Where would it be? That's a that's an interesting one. I'm not sure I'd necessarily live anywhere else because I'm quite, you know, I'm quite British. Fair um, enough. Yeah. Hundred dollar product that's been of the most value. Hundred dollar product that's or been, less. Oh God, probably right now my AirPods because they allow me to do my work and <laughs> whilst I'm on the phone. So yeah. And an app you would swear by. The app I would swear by. Oh, um, has to be the. Uh, the tube app in London, you know, so you, you just put your destination in rather than reading all these tube signs. Cause, you know, I, I missed the first, um, never swear at the Queen's speech, right? When she came to well, my first parliament, cause I was on the wrong tube and I went the wrong way. <laughs> right. So that apparently you, you're not a Londoner until you've gone on the wrong tube. That's funny. But you know, to, to, so the first in uh, my first parliament, yeah. How did it feel when you got in? Like, you, you know, you, you never in a million, in a million years, you would have expected to be in parliament. You sit down and, and it's packed. I, it, it, there are times when I'm driving up or I'm walking up to Parliament, I look at Big Ben and I think, wow, I worked there, right? <laughs> Alhamdulillah, you know that, that what an honour and what a privilege from a girl who's, you know, literally spent nights in crack houses and had experienced homelessness, been on benefits, you know, single parent to three children, being where I've been, you know, ne- nearly not woken up to be in, in a position where I'm representing and, I, and I'm a very Muslim MP so I wear my Muslimness on my sleeve Good. and openly you know I have the largest Muslim constituency in the UK you know I've done some amazing amazing things you know I've had the I was absolutely um, key to getting you know the, the, the right wing press the Daily Mail the Sun into in before the Home Affairs Select Committee as part of our hate crime inquiry to have Ipso in there and to be able to tell the chair of Ipso you know why is a Muslim problem not hate speech but you accept and then rightfully so that the Jewish problem is to take 
take on the Sun with so many MPs, to take on the Quilliam, to take on Sarah Khan, to take on the Henry Jackson Society. Good on you. You know, you know, to to take on the Islamophobes like Douglas Murray and just absolutely call them out in Parliament. Incredible. Never Thank did. you so much. Zakalakh, that was absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi guys, thank you very much for listening. The Transit Lounge is part of a podcast network called Toledo Society. If you're keen on getting involved, email the team via info at toledosociety.com.